You excuse me this morning if I sound a little bit weird. I got a cold this week, and though I'm all better, it's still all here. So if I sound a little bit weird, that's why. And I apologize to you in the first couple rows if anything comes flying at you when I get excited. You know, that's what the Bibles are for. Just, you know, prepare yourself now. All right, so this Sunday, we are finishing up uh, our series in the book of Genesis called In the Beginning. It's our last Sunday in this series before we move on to the first four chapters of John uh, next week. Um, And in this series, we've been looking at the first 11 chapters of Genesis to see what the Bible has to say about how the world began, how God created it, why God created it, and then why it is the way that it is now. You know, and as I was sitting this week preparing for this last message in Genesis 11, I was just amazed at how the Bible speaks to our present through its past. Like all the the truths that we find in the history of these first 11 chapters of Genesis, they still speak true into our lives today as if the events happened today. What we can learn about God and ourselves and sin and salvation. And so I was just praising God for that, that his, his word is alive, living, and active. People often ask me uh, in the past, like, the Bible's old. It's not up to date. I said, man, the, the Bible's not only up to date, it's centuries ahead. Because its truth is timeless for our lives. Praise God that he has given us this book to learn about him from. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. So this morning, like I said, we're back in Genesis 11. All the slides up uh, top, you can follow through, follow along in the Bibles provided for you. If you don't have one, Genesis is all the way to the left. All right, let me give you a little context. <coughs> the years have rolled forward since the flood. Noah and his family have now settled down, and they begin to repopulate the planet as God has instructed them. And over time, the descendants of Noah began to build towns and villages and cities And with that context, we're going to pick this up in Genesis 11. (coughs) Might be a lot of water breaks today, I'm warning you now. Genesis 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and butamen. For mortar, that was kind of asphalt-type-like material. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And then the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people. They have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. So to recap this, the entire world has one language. And someone said, and some of these people migrated to the east into what is most likely modern day Iraq. And someone had an idea. 
I said, hey, let's build a city. And let's build a high tower in this city, so high that it reaches into the heavens, which is another term for the sky. Now, we don't know for sure what this tower was, but most of all the scholars that I have read think it was probably what was known as a ziggurat. And here's what one looks like. This, is, this ziggurat is uh, in uh, Ur, and it's, is it, there it is, Gary, there you go. It was uh, built 2,100 years before the birth of Christ. Um, it's partially reconstructed, that's why it looks so good, uh, I think in the 1980s. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's in Iraq, uh, so you can go visit it if you want. And there's, there's several of these that remain in different various levels of disrepair across the world. And, and archaeologists, they, they've excavated all of these, and they found that these structures were primarily built for religious purposes. And usually at the top, there's this special shrine that was built, and it was dedicated to a god or to a goddess. And the people hoped that what, the, what would happen is that the god or the goddess would come down to them where they would meet with the people, and they would receive their worship, and then they would bless the people. Now, as for the Tower of Babel, though, it seemed to have a bit of a different purpose. And the text gives us two clues on why these people wanted to build this city and build this tower. You see here it says, we want to build ourselves a city, make our name for ourselves, lest we be the key one, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So this text seems to point to an attitude of pride and fear. They were concerned about being spread out and feeling weak and on their own. And so they said, let's build a city. Let's build a tower. And somehow building the city or tower would make them seem great to those around them. Now, there is some speculation that this tower was built in a way to protect themselves from another flood. Anybody ever heard the phrase or used the phrase, you're such a nimrod? Anybody? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, you guys have. All right. I thought it was like a West Coast thing, but... So if you haven't heard it before, it means like, don't be stupid. Um, and in Genesis 10, there's a dude named Nimrod. And here's all that's said about him. Genesis 10, 8. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it said, like, Nim, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Excuse me one moment. Turn off my mic because I figured you didn't want to hear that. <laughs> now, this is all that's said in Genesis. But in rabbinic tradition, the tradition of the rabbis, and also Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, it points that uh, one of the main reasons that this tower got built was because Nimrod ordered it because he was a mighty dude. So he was like the jock in high school. He had the letterman's jacket. He had all the letters. He played like nine sports. And everybody's like, oh, it's Nimrod, Right? Right? So he was boss. And so he, he built another structure to withstand a worldwide flood like we saw in Genesis 6. And, and if this is accurate, then it's not like Nimrod was shaking his hand at God saying, like, look, I'm going to create a structure so high that even you can't destroy me. Now, it's an interesting side note to those of you Bible historian buffs that Nimrod is also believed to be by some, uh, believed to be by some ethnologists 
people who study different societies and cultures. Um, he's believed to be Sargon I, who was the first king of Babylon. Uh, and they believe this because uh, people in those times, they, usually kings would have like three or four names based, you know, every culture would have a different, every language would have a different name for a guy. And so they believe that the erection of a tower of Babel was the beginning of the city of Babylon, which became the nation of Babylon. And if you've read the Bible, you know that Babylon is a symbol for all of evil, for God's great enemy throughout the Bible. And it's a prominent term that you see used in the book of Revelation, which we'll talk about this fall. But we'll talk about that more then. All right, so we got this tower goes up. They put it up, keep themselves safe, make their name great. They're not dispersed. How does God respond? So God goes down, as we read, and he confuses all their languages. I mean, imagine. One moment you're sitting there, you're working at your friend at work, whatever job you do out there, and all the moment, and out of nowhere, they just start speaking Spanish. And they don't understand English anymore. Just like that. Can you imagine the chaos that would ensue? You know, I picture like the New York Stock Exchange and where they're all yelling gibberish anyway, but they're, they're, all of them just start speaking different languages. Utter and complete chaos. Well, this is what happened here. And this is before the time of Google Translate. So they're all like, you know, complete and utter chaos. And so this caused the people who spoke the same language to group together and spread out from the others. <coughs> like they are today. Now, Scripture <clears throat> does not say this, but some believe that the Tower of Babel was the reason that we have all the different races and languages that we have today, right? Because those who spoke the same language, they grouped together, they moved off together. And so then the gene pool dramatically shrank for each of those groups, and then certain features in the genetics of that group would only get emphasized more and more as generation after generation after generation after generation. The question for today, though, is why did God do this? Why did he do this? Let's go back and look at verse 6. It says, this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Someone once asked me, it almost reads like God's scared of them. Like they're going to build a tower so high, they're going to come into heaven and like overthrow God as if he was, you know, up in space. Well, we know this isn't the case because God literally just wiped out everybody except one family with a flood. So that can't be it. It's got to be something else. What I want you to do is I want you to look at this text in the context of the human propensity for sin. Remember, since the very first obedient, disobedience, the fall in the Garden of Eden, Mankind has been sick with sin. Sick with a desire to be their own God. To do what seems right to them. And it's in that context in which we read this. And it's in this context that we see that the implication of the statement is that if God were to withhold his hand, man was just going to go from bad to worse. Their sin is just going to snowball. I mean, his observation that this is what they begin to do suggests that they're heading down this track to a level of depravity that they saw in the days of Noah. If God did not intervene, human race was just going to slip right back into those deep levels of wickedness. And when you understand it like this, and in this context, you really see that 
God's judgment here was an act of mercy. It was an act of mercy by the Lord. I mean, he was preventing them from falling into deeper sin by separating them. It's like, you know, when you, when you punish your kids rightly with the right heart and attitude, it's an act of mercy because you are preventing them from going down a road in a certain behavior that's going to be destructive for them. I see it in the same manner. So the next time you're, you're punishing your kid, just remind them it's an act of mercy and for them to thank you. I'm sure they'll fall on their knees and be so thankful. But the unity of mankind, we're only going to give people a false sense of power. And it was going to lead them into a greater rebellion of God. And we see that in our nation today, that the more, more wealth that we gather, the more sense of security that we gather, the more people that come around us on our side, the, more, the safer that we, that we feel, the more in control that we feel. And the safer that we feel, the more control that we feel, the less that we look to God. I tell you, when people come sit in these pews for the first, these chairs for the first time, I'm going to tell you, eight times out of ten, it's because something has taken away their security. Some tragedy has befall them, or their sin has overcome them. I, I, I rarely have someone come sit in these seats and say, you know what, I won the lottery, I'm so great that I realize I just want to come and give God everything because he's blessed me. No, that's not. That's not. Our human propensity is to benefit ourselves, to rely on ourselves. And so God is taking that away from them. It's an act of mercy. You know, and it, and it makes me wonder, like, now God isn't the cause of every bad thing that happens. I mean, ultimately, he allows everything that happens. But it makes me wonder that, like, the times in my life where I've had, like, rough things happen to me, like, I, sometimes I just wonder as I was working on that this morning, I'm like, I wonder where some of these were like an act of mercy because I was headed down a really bad path. And God was like, no, I'm going to save you out of this one. There are a few times I look back in my life where I'm like, yeah, the only explanation for that was God saving my, my hiney again. Sorry, that was probably less than pastoral term, Heine, but you get the point. And I'm sure if you think back in your guys' life, you can see those moments like, man, where God, God's judgment, God's punishment, man, he plucked me out of this. Lord knows where I would have been elsewhere. You know, and this is a good reminder. If God is a God of love, if he's a God of goodness, then we need to stop seeing his commands and his acts of justice as negative that like restrict our personal freedom and our personal happiness and see them like, man, if he's good, if, if he's all good and he's love, then really what he's trying to do for us is give us what is his best for our lives. I mean, he created us, right? So he knows what is best. I mean, God said to them, fill the earth, fill the earth. He says, if you stay together, the sin that's inside of you is going to grow faster and spread quicker, and it will destroy you. Fill the earth. This is what's best for you. And I, you know, I think I was thinking about it this week for us in, in modern times. And, and last week we talked about the flood. We talked about the rainbow. You know, and, and, and then we, we, we briefly, briefly touched on homosexuality. And I encouraged people who struggle with the Bible's view on this to go back and listen to my message, um, you know, in November of, of 2020 right before the election. 
Um, but, you know, some people, when I talk to about this, they're like, man, why would God want to rob people of their happiness? And, and, and I was like, man, have you ever considered that if God is a God of love and a God of righteousness, that when he tells you one man and one woman, it's not because he's, he hates people or he's trying to rob you of your personal happiness, but maybe because he knows that your fulfillment, your greatest joy will be in this kind of lifestyle of a man and a woman, that that's what he created you for? That's what the best is? Have you ever considered that as an option? I mean, if he created everything and he's a God of love, then he knows what's best and optimal for us. I mean, when God says, don't have sex before marriage, it's not like he's like trying to like ride you, you know, rob you of having a good time. It's because he knows the damage that will be done when you have sex outside of marriage and that the beauty that sex can be inside of marriage. But because of our sin, our desire to be free, to be our own God, we have this tendency to ignore God and to equate ourselves to be level with God where we can pick and choose what we want to obey and what we want to disobey. We make effort to avoid being accountable to him as the creator in the areas that we don't like. We'll justify it. We'll ignore it. Or we'll ignore God altogether so that we're not forced to face it. And then we go down that slippery slope as we talked to weeks ago when we talked about Cain of having to find worth and value in ourselves, in our name, because we're not finding it in God. And this tendency does not change from the times in Genesis. Every generation builds its own towers. Every generation, whether it's an actual tower, mega corporations that circle the globe, with our social media nowadays, we're all building our own towers to make our name great to get us what we want, to protect what we want. We'll make our own towers and churches, get in positions of leadership where we can manipulate the way we think things need to be. Or we'll do that in leadership in our jobs. Or we'll go out for more powerful jobs because we want more money and more safety and, 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 and more comfort and security. And you can see it as a nation. We're heading down the same path. As our, country, as our world becomes smaller, we're watching evil get emphasized and spread from one country to another like a virus. And I fear a lot of it coming out of this country. No, God's people, people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you can't escape this, okay? Can't go live on Mars yet. And even if we could, we know sin would follow us. And we shouldn't want to escape it because it's in the world that we have our ministry. But we must avoid falling for these traps. Because of our sin nature, it is so easy for us to live for our own glory, for our own name, even in the smallest areas. I mean, this morning I want you to ask yourself, do you live for God's glory? Do you live for God's name or for your own? 
And what is the evidence that you have in your life that you live for God's glory? Coming to church once a week, that's not evidence. Especially if it's once every few weeks. There's more. To live for God's glory is a daily thing. I'm going to tell you one great way to tell if you're living for God's name and his glory. It's if you submit your plans to the Lord or not. Do you submit your plans to the Lord in your life? Proverbs, Proverbs 16, it says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. I mean, look at the plans of all these people in Genesis 11. They were all about themselves. There was no mention of God. There's no mention of seeking his will. There was no mention of bringing glory to his name, obeying his commands. It was all about us, I, we, what we can do. What's driving the plans in your life? Is it God's word? Is it, is it trusting in his promises? Or are you being driven by things that make you look good? Are you driven by things that make you feel safe and comfortable and secure? Because let me tell you, if you're a Christian, if you tell me you're a Christian and your life is comfortable and secure, something's wrong. Because that's not the kind of life that God calls you to. God will direct you to do things that does not make your name look great. He will direct you to do things that will make you feel afraid and, and insecure. Even if it's like, hey, you see that person at the end of the grocery aisle? Go talk to them about Jesus. Even in small ways. He'll say, hey, don't take that job that makes you more financially better off. I want you to stay here. I want you to take this job that makes you financially worse because I have other plans for you. God's con cons not concerned with our happiness or our wealth. We need to know that because there's a lot of unmentionable people who call themselves pastors that'll tell you otherwise. Do you submit your plans to the Lord? I mean, look at Genesis 11. These people were supposed to fill the earth. You know that means? They separate, strengthen numbers. Nope, 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 separate. Go to different corners of the world that you've never been to. You don't know what's out there. You don't know if like, you know, the kangaroo went that way or if like the lion that went that way or if, you, if a dinosaur went that way. You don't know what went that way, you know? You don't know what direction you're going. You don't know what the weather's gonna be like. God said, go. Spread. And in the same way, God's going to ask us to take steps of faith that doesn't make financial sense, that, that makes us feel vulnerable, that makes us feel weak. Even this morning when I was giving announcements, someone might, you know, one of those announcements I might have mentioned, like kids ministry, what have you, God, you might have felt God going, hey, that's you. And you're like, oh, that must have been the pizza I ate this morning for breakfast or something. In all of these ways, there's, there's no area of life where we shouldn't ask this question, am I submitting my plans to the Lord? Is he calling me into something? Now, the problem is, in those times where we feel like we're supposed to take a step that makes us feel vulnerable or weak, or maybe it's a, a, a step of humility where our name will not be so great, it's our tendency to look at all the risks and what we're going to lose. 
But that should never be the first step in our lives, ever. Ever. The first step, every time we feel the Lord pressing on us or possibly pressing, the step should be, Lord, what is your will? That's it. Boom. I don't care what it is. There is no scenario you can give me where the question, what is your will, is not the question that you ask. Lord, I just want to discern your will. Don't get me wrong. It's good to pay attention to the risk. Our board here at our church, we're often taking up issues and we're looking at things we have to decide and the positives and the negatives and the practical and the impractical. But at the end of the day, it's our striving desire, no matter what, to discern what is God's will. His will, his desire, his word should always trump all the details. It should always come first. I mean, many of us come here on Sunday mornings, we, pray, we sing these songs, I exalt thee, how great is God, how great is our God, all of these songs, but then we walk out of Sunday morning and something hits us in the face that challenges us, that makes us feel afraid, and then we're like, no, I'm good. Like, no thanks. Some of us make security an idol in our lives. An idol is anything that's more important to you than God. Anything. And we've made security in our, in our lives. For fear, whatever the reason, security has become an idol for us. And I'm praying, if that is you, you're seeing it right now, you're feeling it, and the Lord's saying, yeah, that's you. I'm praying that right now. Because it holds us back because of, of, of the amazing things that God wants to do in our lives. Like, I, I'm, like, I'm like, I'm wondering there. Now, like, maybe someone did this, but the Tower of Babel, I'm like, well, I did somebody raise their hand and say, hey, um, Mr. Nimrod, or whoever was, you know, like, uh, just throwing this out there, God kind of said, multiply and fill the earth. Do you think maybe we should do that? Might be a good idea guy who created everything. Should we talk about it maybe just a little bit? Like, what would have happened? How would the story have turned out differently? Now, on the flip side, anytime that we're offered an opportunity that seems to benefit our name, to elevate our name, or to make us feel more secure and safe, Man, that is, that's, we're like really, oh God, God has blessed me. That is his will. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I can, I can tell you right now as a pastor, uh, in my own life and all the people that I have talked to, how many times when people come to talk to me, when it is something that they already want, how it is, they are so sure it's from the Lord. And then only when it's something that they don't want to do, that they're like, I just don't know if that was God. I cannot, it, it, and I do it in my own heart. So like I'm on, the same, I'm on the same stage here with you. We have to be sure in those times that we are pausing and saying like, Lord, is this the Lord's will? Or is this my will? I just want God to get on board because it's exactly what I want. And we do this through God's word. We do this through godly counsel. We do this through prayer. Because any time that we take that step and we go to do something that's about our name and our security, we learn very quickly that it's never enough. 
Building up our own name and having enough security is never enough. Whenever we get it, then we need more. Then we need more. Then we need more. And then we need more. And then we need more. Because we're never meant to find our worth, never meant to find security and safety in ourselves. It's not how we were designed. We were designed to find it in our Savior, in the Lord, from the beginning. John Piper, I love the way he puts this. He says, God's will for human beings is not that we find our joy in being praised, but that we find our joy in knowing and praising him. His will is not that we find our security in cities, but in God in whom we gladly, gladly obey. This is how it was intended from the beginning. That we would find everything in our relationship with God and God alone. And it's only when we look to him again that we have peace in all situations where we can walk out into the unknown. Not because we're confident in the situ situation, not because we're confident in the outcome, but because we're confident in the one who knows the outcome. Because we're confident in the one who is the creator. Far too many of us, we grew up in this religion that do good, God blesses, do bad, God curses. And so we're always like, okay, God, what do I need to do to be on your good side? What do I need not to do? And, and learning what, how to obey God and not obey God is very important, but if the basis of your faith in him is built on that, it's never gonna work. When we read scripture, the first question should not gonna be, okay, what does God want me to do or not do? Our first question we should always be asked is, what does this reveal to me about God? What does this help me understand about the nature of God? Because when you understand the character of God and who he is, it changes how you see everything. It makes it easier for you to follow him into every situation. When you read and understand that God is infinite, that he's immutable, which means he never changes, that he's self-sufficient, that he has no needs, that he's omnipotent, all-powerful, that he's omniscient, all-knowing, that he's omnipresent, he's everywhere, that he is wise, that he's faithful, that he's good, that he is just, and yet merciful, and compassionate, and kind, sparing the guilty, that he is loving, and yet holy, that he is glorious. When you learn things about your Savior, you learn that he's the only place that we find security. He's the only way that we find true worth in any situation. And it's only in those times that we're pressing in to understand our Savior in all aspects of our lives that we learn what it means. In Proverbs 18.10, you remember this from Bible school. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs in and he is safe. You remember? And it's like, I love this the idea of if then, because when you learn about God, it changes things. If God will always provide for me, then why am I afraid to do what he's calling me to do? If God is good, then I know the direction he tells me to go is good, and the direction he tells me not to go is bad. If God is wise, then I need to be humble and realize he knows way more than I do. If God is faithful, then I'm going to trust him to catch me when I fall. 
It's all, notice it's not based on what I do or don't do. It is based on who God is. Changes everything about your life. And those of you who know what your life was like before knowing him and know him now, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's the peace that passes all understanding. You're like, okay, God, look, I don't know where you're going. I don't know what this next step is going to lead me to. Like, I think it's going to go here, but you're God. Like, I don't understand you, so it could go here, 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 and here, and here. I, I don't know, but I know you. That's all I need to know, and so I'm going to just take the next right step. That's all I'm going to do. I'm going to do the next right thing you're calling me to do. Now I'm here, okay? I still don't know where this is going to go. like it to go here. Could go here. I'd be okay with here. Don't want it to go here. Definitely not here. But I don't need to know that. All I need to know is you who knows the direction. So I'm just going to take the next right step. And then after you take the step after step after step after step after step, and you look back and you see the God who is faithful, who has walked with you every step of the way. And here's the beautiful part. For those of you who are walking and you go, all right, next right thing, next right thing, next right thing. And you're like, oh man, I'm too afraid for this. Oh, I'm not paying attention to God. I'm going to walk over here. And you're like, oh man, look what I've done. I'm totally messed this up. Like, how do I get back? You'll see God say, okay, next right step. Here, and then here, and here, and here. And because he is faithful and merciful and just, he will still get you where he wants you to go. He did that with the people in Genesis 11. He said, okay, you guys don't want to disperse on your own? All right, Spanish for you, Portuguese for you, Russian for you, Hindi for you. And then what do they do? They spread out. They did exactly what he wanted them to do anyway. They're playing checkers. God's playing chess. He is faithful. He will get you to where you want to go, but you're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. You won't see it. He'll still move you, but you may not see it if your eyes are not on him. And so my prayer this morning is Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. And this is what I pray that all of us take away from this because you're either going to be challenged today, you're in the middle of it, or you're going to be challenged tomorrow, but it's coming that you will trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust in the Lord. Not trust in the direction, not trust in what you can see, but trust in the Lord. Not trust in what you can feel. A whole lot of that going around nowadays. And lean not on your own understanding. Oh Lord, too much of that going around nowadays too. Trust in him, his understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. It means you're obedient to him. And he says, he will make straight your paths. He said, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear of the Lord and turn away from the evil. And here's the beautiful thing about fearing the Lord. We always think of it as a bad thing when we fear the Lord. Too many horror movies growing up, I guess. But Charles Spurgeon said it the best. He said, the great thing about when you fear the Lord is you will not fear anything else. Amen, church? Amen. 